Welcome to Global Math Department. My name is Rana Arshad Hafiz and I'll be your host tonight. Tonight, we are going to hear from Teresa Hickey, who's an assistant professor at St. Martin's University. Please introduce yourself if you have not done so yet in the chat window and also tell us where you are from and what your Twitter handle is. At the top of the chat, you will see a little sticky where we have given information about a study that North Carolina State University is doing um, regarding these webinars that we present. Um, if you have ever participated, presented, or attended a webinar, you are eligible to um, participate in this, in this study. It would be wonderful, and it, was, it would give us good data on how these um, webinars are working. Before I introduce our speaker, I'd like to explain how these meetings work. These meetings are recorded and are available within 24 hours after the meeting ends. To view the recording, you can use the same link you used to get here tonight. The global math community prides itself in being a friendly and supportive community. The chat room is available for topical and general conversation throughout the meeting. I'll be sure to catch your questions for the presenter to be addressed at the end of the presentation. Our presenter tonight is Teresa Hickey, and I'm going to let her introduce herself to you. Thank you, Rana, and Lee, also for all of your support. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Wonder, Plan, Run, Reflect. I'm so glad to be here with you in this math community, and we're going to talk about action research in the math classroom. It has been just a year of challenges. My goodness, right? Um, and, and I'm sure that many of you are feeling the effects, the, the exhaustion, the overwhelm. I'm in the middle right now of my final exam series with students at my school, and the students are just um, enduring what seem to be overwhelming challenges. So I want to offer this to you tonight as what I call a sort of tuck away talk. So we can spend this time together in community in this moment without any obligation that you have to move this work forward at this point in time. But, but when you leave, you'll have some good things to think about and some ideas and maybe some new questions. And you have the permission to just tuck it all away and revisit it when you have the time um, that's right for you. So with that, um, I thought we could just get started. Um, I'll introduce myself, as Rana had said. My name is Teresa Hickey, and um, before I do this, I want to share my screen. So let's get that set, and then we'll get going. So I'm going to turn off my video. How's that? Can you hear me now? We can hear you now, and uh, now you just need to share your screen, and then we'll be good to go. <laughs> oh, it says it's being shared right now. Now yep, it's being good. Good. Oh, yeah, yeah you there for a second. Okay. Can you see my shared screen now? Uh, no, not now. Oh. 
It was there for a split second. We'll get this. How's that? Can you see the screen now? Uh, no. I uh, Wait, hold on. Don't do anything. It says loading. It's, it's fine. We can see it. And now we can see it. Yes, you're good now. Excellent. Okay. We can hear you. <laughs> this is great. Beautiful. So thank you for your patience as we get this up and running. It's taking a village here, as it usually does, right? So um, I just wanted to start with introducing myself um, using pictures here. My name is Teresa Hickey, and I teach at a small school in the Pacific Northwest. Somebody asked in the chat box, it's actually in Washington State. So I'm there I'm director of the educator preparation programs, which means I get to teach and support the students who are training to be teachers. I, I love math. I mean, I've always had this desire to do more and see math in every place that I look. So my units as a consequence of that have always been really interdisciplinary. I make units with robots and science and nature and writing and rap. Um, most important though, throughout everything I've done has been the development and nurturing of my community, my community of learners. So with every year and with every class and every group that I have, everything for me starts with my learners. So action research has been a really great way for me to develop my practice across time. And it's allowed me to be um, really responsive to my learners. So I'm excited to share some ideas with you tonight so that you might have the tools um, to try it out yourselves when the time is right for you. So tonight's discussion is gonna focus in these places. It's primarily an overview and a tool building so that when you walk away, you should be able to engage with this um, at a starter level and really get diving into some research for your own classroom. I thought we'd start with just kind of a general overview of what action research is and why you might want to consider it and then what it looks like and then an easy to use framework for thinking about how to put it into action in your own classroom. So what is action research? Well, it's really a way of exploring questions in a structured manner. And it often is focused at the classroom or the practice level. So it tends to be really boots on the ground research by teachers, specialists, people who work in buildings, people who support learners. And um, it involves questions and gathering information and reflecting on it and then taking action and then doing it all over again. So it's this really um, unique and iterative cycle that, that grows and develops across time. And it helps you to become even stronger and more awesome at what you're doing um, with your specific learners. And the nicest thing about it is that it centers on the group in front of you. So you get to have this really unique relationship and learning experience with the, the group of learners that's right in front of you at the time. So why would you consider it? Well, to me, it's the ultimate way to explore being responsive to your learners. You get to explore connections and ideas that are really meaningful for both you and for them. It's also centered on them. It involves questions about how they are, who they are, how they think and learn and interact with one another. And the goal is to find the most effective ways to help the, whatever group is in front of you learn and grow. 
And a really nice part of this is that it naturally promotes equity in your classroom. And it helps you as an educator to develop equity-centric practices. And it does this by requiring you to focus in and really listen to your learners and focus on all of the assets that they bring to the classroom. It essentially says, okay, here are my learners. This is my learning community. And I'm out to figure out what specifically works with this group of amazing and complicated people. So the point is to really explore your own practice and to think about your learners and then to craft a way forward that meets their needs. So what does it look like? Well, if you go into the research and you dive around and you read, um, you'll find that people have all sorts of things, right? They like to put structures on this action research uh, process. So there are eight steps or six steps, or here are the three steps. Well, I have four. And these, um, I find for my own self, seem to be a really helpful way of envisioning the process in a way that's simple enough to remember and um, yet it's not completely linear, right? There's some overlaps and some, um, some shared thinking that needs to go on in each of these different steps. But we'll talk about each of these in turn here and we'll start with wonder. So this begins with the creation of a list of things that you, you're actually wondering about. That's how it all starts. You have to be staring at this class and interacting with them and knowing them quite a bit and then thinking, I wonder what would happen if, or I wonder if I did this, would that happen? So it all starts with this um, pedagogical curiosity that you can bring to your group of learners. What are you paying attention to, right? It also can be you thinking about things that you want to improve in your classroom. Maybe you're not satisfied with a certain way that you roll out lessons, or maybe you're thinking about the use of different formative assessments um, because you're not getting exactly what you need to understand where your learners are at. You could also be focusing on things that are problems in your classroom that um, you hope to lessen, right? And then you can also think about really good things that suddenly happen somewhere and you're thinking, oh my goodness, you know, how can I, how can I replicate that? What can I do to, to scaffold that amazingness so that it continues on in future lessons? You also maybe could be considering necessary things, right? As teachers, we have, oh, we have so many necessary things. And so you could run action research to find out maybe, um, more efficient or effective ways of implementing things that you're asked to implement. Um, and maybe you just have heard about some really cool things that somebody's doing. Like um, this happens with me a lot. I hear about some amazing practice thing that somebody's doing in science class or a literature class. And I think, wow, what would that do for the learners in my math class? And so you're bringing something you've heard about into a new location for you and giving it a try. So, you know, as, as instructors, as teachers, as people who support learners, you care about a million different things in the classroom. And um, you could just make lists for days of all the things that you're noticing and paying attention to as you're actually teaching throughout a segment in a day. And action research actually can help you provide by providing greater insight into any one of these things. 
So here's some categories that I wanted you to consider. And then I want you to try some things out in the chat box. So brainstorm a list. What are you curious about in your own classrooms? Right? What are the things you wonder about? And I gave some categories here to help shape some of your thinking. So you could think about things that students do. Like what, what things do they do in the classroom that you want them to do more of? Like maybe using math vocabulary. Or maybe you want them to use, um, um, uh, you want them to interact better in groups or differently in groups. So you could also think about things that happen within the structure of a classroom. Things like transition times, right? Maybe you're interested in flipping the way that you do instruction. Flipped classrooms were um, and are still a thing that some teachers use. Well, that was a new structure that teachers moved in and they had to do some testing and adjustment and research on. Maybe though also you're really curious about things that are involved in the learning. And in this category, I consider um, tools like um, manipulatives or use of virtual um, simulations or um, use of math, um, personal dictionaries, things like that, different tools that you use to scaffold and support the learning in students' classrooms. And then things you do are kind of the pedagogical things that you might do in a classroom. Like maybe you give, you're curious about what would happen if you give feedback in a certain way, or maybe you're curious um, about what would happen if you teach from a different spot in the classroom. I, I did a little research on that for me one year. You know, I wondered what would happen if I decentered myself and I taught from the back of the classroom and um, reorganized the structure of the room. And so that would be a pedagogical thing that I might do. So I don't have the capacity to see in the chat box right here, but Rana, if people share things they're curious about, would you be willing to read out a few? Yes, I will do that, Teresa. Thank you. So feel free to share some things that you've been thinking about in your own classroom. Some practice elements that maybe you'd like to run some action research on. Maybe you're curious about if you could change them or grow them. So because I couldn't see the chat box, I did go ahead and fill out some of the categories with just examples because I wasn't certain um, you know what I might see. But for instance, in terms of things students do, maybe you want to um, increase their engagement in a certain way or increase the, the um, identity that they have as mathematicians. Things that you could explore within the structure of a class. I mentioned transitions, um, but maybe the use of math stations or notebooks, or maybe a process that you want to change for late work or a different formative assessment. These, um, ne this next category is tools and maybe virtual interactives or personal dictionaries, word walls, sentence frames, use of art. Any of these things might be really interesting to study and explore when you're in the classroom, as well as some of the things that you do. For instance, maybe you're curious about um, telling math struggle stories. This was studied in science classrooms. What happens when you tell students real stories behind um, scientists who struggle in um, their explorations of science. Well, we could do that with math as well, right? And that might be a really powerful thing to do for our learners. So there are a million things that you can study and this is where action research begins with your curiosity and your desire to think about something within your practice in your classroom.
I'll share what uh, Michelle Norton has written, Teresa. She shares with us that I want to figure out how to base the learning program around rich tasks, yet ensure essential skills and knowledge are also developed, finding a balance and trusting it. Yes, so that's a powerful place to start because you have a few questions that you could develop there. The rich tasks um, have the capability or the capacity to dive into your learners in a lot of different ways. They could affect, um, they could affect engagement. They could affect uh, students' ability to find multiple solutions, right? Rich tasks are so open and um, um, they give so much to the study of math that students have um, a wide range of results and reactions to them. And so you could pick your second variable or your second thing to study, and that would be a great thing to run as an action research project. Yeah, thank you. So once you come up with an item or two that you want um, to study in your classroom, what you want to do is is think about them using one of these sentence frames here. This is not the only way to do action research, but I find it's a really helpful tool to have the structure set out in front of you, how to craft your question. So you might wonder, for instance, is there a relationship between this and this in my classroom? Like if I did this thing in the classroom, would there be any effect on this other thing? If I ran, um, um, a unit using only rich tasks, would there be a change in engagement, for instance? Does something I do in the classroom depend on something else? Or would there be an association between blank and blank? So one of the takeaways that I'd like you to think about tonight is that you don't have to use assessment as um, a fill in the blank here. I think when we think about research and especially in math class, we almost always go to the fact that we'll see success as measured through a quiz or an exit ticket or a completion of a problem or success on a test. And I want to show you um, a way to expand your thinking so that you, you're doing what you know is real in the classroom. Because in the classroom, you know not everything depends and is um, revolves around an assessment. So. This is an ability to kind of structure a research project without that variable. But at the same time, it will also, um, it, you could also include that variable if you're interested in it. But for instance, you could put in something like, is there a relationship between students' identity as mathematicians and the use of struggle stories in math? Maybe you want to bring in these stories and then have students reflect and you see if there's any change in how they see themselves as mathematicians. Right. Or you could think about, is there an association between um, rewriting, you know, those standard problems that you get in a textbook, the word problems, so that they contain community references and class personal specifics like interests they have and things. And is there an association between doing that and the student time that they spend actually engaging in the struggle to solve a problem? So you can also enter a few that you're curious about in the chat, but I have some here too, just to get you thinking. So filling in the blanks, is there a relationship between greeting students at the door with a special handshake, 
And then maybe you want to know if that has any effect on transition times, right? There um, were some teachers who were highlighted in a story about just classroom management and community building. And they had these really involved, personal, special, um, really caring handshakes and gestures and things that they did greeting students in the door. And it was really fun. Um, and it was a special one for each student. So if I did that in the math classroom as they came in, would that affect the transition times? What about student verbal sharing of thinking? So out loud sharing. And does that depend on maybe the number of available sentence frames I provide? So if I don't give any support, do they share a certain amount? If I give one or two, do they share a certain amount? And, and looking at that kind of relationship. And then I put another one up here. Is there an association between a student's ability to produce multiple representations and the use of virtual manipulatives? So what if you were teaching something without any um, um, manipulatives that were on the screen, but you were using hands-on ones, for instance, and you added the virtual ones, would you see any difference in their ability to visualize responses or provide multiple representations? So these are just a few examples of how you can pair two of these items, none of which is a test or an assessment or a score, and still get a really interesting and compelling thing to do action research on for your classroom. So once you get um, that far, you want to start exploring what's out there in the research so that you can learn a little bit more about what people already have studied. What do people know about these two items, right, that you're, you're trying to compare, trying to find associations between? And what do, you, what do people know about them maybe together? So you can think about this part of the research as kind of a Venn diagram, right? You're gonna dig into what's been studied a little bit about um, each of the items singly and then how they overlap. So if I'm using a question like this, is there a relationship between using student-created comic books to learn math, right? What a cool interactive way to kind of um, represent what they know and student participation in math discussions. So it's interesting because it's a creation that's uh, visual and it's written. And I'm trying to figure out if that's gonna affect their participation. So that might even be verbal, the way I measure it, it depends. But if I'm gonna look into the research, I'm gonna use each of these underlined things, each of these themes, and I'm gonna look at them singly to figure out what's known about each one. And then I'm gonna try and look at them together and that will shape how you research them. So for this, I'll wanna know, um, what, what do people know about the use of comic books and learning? And this could be learning in literature class. It could be learning in history class. It doesn't have to be just math, but it has to be the idea of comic books as scaffold supports for actual learning. And it can be in math class if that exists. And then what I want to know about is how um, people have explored the idea of student participation in math discussions, right? And I want to find out what they've learned about that. What are the things that are supporting um, greater um, student participation and what are helpful scaffolds? What can I put into place? What tools and what do people know? And then like imagining the Venn diagram and the overlap shared area, are there any studies that have explored these two ideas together? And I might find some comic books and student participation in discussions in math. So that's the idea of how to go from choosing your variables or choosing your, you know, the two research things 
um, that you want to explore, finding the relationship and putting it into a question, and then using um, the question to help you structure your um, dive into the research to see what's already known about these topics. So where do you go for the research? That's always been a frustrating thing for me. So before, when I was just teaching in the classroom, um, I didn't have access to any of the journals. I would see them online maybe, but they'd all be blocked out by paywalls. And so there are a few workarounds that I wanna help you um, know about. So Google Scholar is a really great place to start. And the address is right here. It's like Google, um, except it's a search engine that just has to do with academic writing. So there are a lot of free um, academic pieces of research that you can download when you go to this place. There's another um, place that people don't think to look, but your local libraries. Your local libraries can be amazing resources when it comes to finding some of this research because they subscribe to a lot of the databases and journals um, and services that provide access to a lot of articles. And if you're still stuck, you, um, you could travel to a close university library. And sometimes you can go in as a guest for the day and just use their um, computers right there and you have access to their databases. So those are some ideas. But what happened when I went to Google Scholar was I put in comic books and then I put in math participation just to show you what comes up and this is all free. And what I found was that, gosh, people are studying that and it's a really fun area to explore. I get down these rabbit holes of research all the time um, and they can be really interesting. So when it comes to Google Scholar, you can choose uh, to have just really recent findings you can also learn in this green line um, where the research is kind of centered. And the university ones are um, really interesting, as are the um, journals. And then over here, if you see an entry in blue in the side column, it means that it's available to you. And all you have to do is click it and you can get the download. Um, if there's a blank, which often there is, um, depending upon what you're studying, it means that you should take all of the information you find here and bring it to your local library and see if you can um, access it through there. So that's the next step. You wanna find out what the discussion is in the areas that you're studying. So this is all wonder, right? So to sum this up, wonder, this is how it all starts. You have to think about what are you thinking about? What are you wondering about? There's a little metacognition going on here. What are things you're curious about with these learners? And these are going to be what we call your variables, the things you're going to compare. Then you want to put them in relationship with one another and craft a question. And then you want to check what people already know about these things, what still needs to be explored, and um, how people are defining the terms. So in general, you're, you're thinking about how your ideas then fall into this landscape of what people already know about things, right? What does existing research say? and what questions um, have been explored and how. You'll get some good ideas from all of that. So that's wonder. So you're, you're at this point in time, you're gonna be motoring into, all right, I'm ready to really start formalizing this. I've got a sense of what I'm doing. I know the things I wanna compare and I'm ready to create my plan. So to create your plan, you wanna start by really structuring the two variables you picked. Okay, um, so 
you have to figure out two things that are really fundamentally important here. You have to figure out how you're going to define your variables and how you're going to measure each of them. And this is called operationalizing. It's a big fancy word, and it just means you're moving these into a place where you can um, you can make them um, operate for you, right? They're operational. They can move forward in a structured manner. So the measuring, when you get to that piece, when you're thinking about how am I going to measure this thing, you should keep in the back of your mind that you need to be as objective as possible. And you can get information in a lot of different ways. Okay, so let's just practice here with the thinking. So how could you measure if one of your variables was transition times, right? So you might think, oh gosh, that's really, that's simply um, too easy for words, right? Transition times, you measure it with time. But it actually is a little more complicated because it comes with the definition too. When does a transition time start? If you're in a classroom, does it start when the first student crosses that threshold into the math class? Or does it start when the last student crosses over? Or does it start when everybody's at their desk and they're kind of shuffling and, and going through their materials and they're not quite started yet, but they are in at least a seated position? When does it start? You have to define that. And then actually you have to define when it ends. Does it end when the last student puts an actual utensil onto paper, a pen or a pencil or whatever they're using? Does it start when, I don't know, you have to figure it out. So something that seems really relatively easy to figure out, like transition times, it could be easy to measure, but it might be a little tricky to define. But once you have the definition in place and structured, then you know exactly when you're going to start and exactly when you're going to end. So that's what operationalizing looks like. How about participation in discussions? So I know maybe you're thinking you've got your, your whole group um, instruction or your whole group and you're asking questions and you're trying to figure out how to measure participation in a discussion. And so maybe a natural thing to think about would be, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna count hand raises, right? I'm gonna count how many people raise hands and then we'll do something different and see if that increases the participation. But you have to be really careful here in how you're measuring your variable because hand raising may not be an equitable, equitable participation measure. Right? There might be students who love to shoot their arms into the air, and there might be those students who really choose to participate in um, less physical ways or in sideways or in quiet ways, right? So choosing to measure participation by hand raising actually privileges one group and excludes some other learners. So you have to rethink, okay, how can I measure it so that every learner has kind of a almost an equal chance of participating, and maybe you find, okay, I need to do that using small groups. So you structure small groups, you give people um, roles that they've had, they're accustomed to within their small groups, and they're in peer groups that they're comfortable with, and you're doing counts of participation gestures or comments or something um, across time. So that would be a case where it seems like it might be easy to measure, but you really have to be careful in defining. And then we have something like respect, right? It's something we want in our classrooms, students to respect one another. 
but how would you measure that and how would you define it? And I chose this one because I wanted to illustrate that sometimes instead of looking at what a variable is, it's easier to identify what it's not. And so in the case of respect, I'm sure every one of you can pick out an instance in class where somebody is showing not respect or disrespect to another person, right? And so it would be easy to have a list of three or four behaviors that show not respect or disrespect and running an action research project across time and looking to see if there's a decrease in these behaviors that show not respect, that might be an actual indicator of respect or a growing respect within the classroom. So sometimes when you're structuring and defining your variables, it's easier to think about um, measures in the classroom that are not what the variable is as a way of illustrating or getting into the variable. And then finally, something like perseverance, right? It's how do you measure that? You have to really think. And there might not be a clear measure in the math classroom, but this is where your specific learners really come into play. And so maybe you know, okay, my learners give up at this point and this is what they show me. Maybe they take a lot of bathroom breaks or maybe they uh, put their pencils away, or maybe their writing gets really large at some point. I don't know. You, but you would. That's the per, that's the point. Is that you would know in your classroom when students are really hitting that struggle wall, and they're showing that um, they're really needing to call into perseverance um, and um, move through a struggle. So, um, just a note that sometimes variables seem easy to define and easy to measure, but you have to be really careful and really intentional. Okay, so then you have to think about um, what kind of data you want to collect. So which voices should be included is what this comes down to. And the type of data that you want um, needs to answer the question that you're asking to the fullest manner. There's not a right answer to this. You just want to find what works best to answer, answer your specific question. So as you're planning what kind of data to gather, you should consider how you can get different kinds of data from a variety of people. And this will help you create the richest picture possible. So we use triangulation in math, right, when we're teaching math. And a similar idea um, exists in the qualitative research landscape. And it just means, um, similar to math, that you want to collect enough information from three points or multiple points or places so that you have just a really centered, rich, full understanding of what's going on. So you can use a lot of different things to get answers, to get data. You can use um, one extra little question on an entry ticket, a warm-up work or exit ticket. You can use student self-reports, like maybe once a week they have to write a one-minute write about something, right, a prompt that you give them. You can use work samples. Maybe they turned in work samples when you did nothing different and you want to study work samples that are similar after you did something different. And you can also look at um, verbal things, interviews with small focus groups, little group meetings with students, one-on-ones, panels. And a, a lot of what's done with action research is actually the collection of observational data. So this is essentially checklists and you have them constructed. Um, if you're looking at transition times, for instance, 
maybe it's overwhelming to think of 24 students and monitoring who's transitioning at what time. So maybe you have three or four focus students, right? And they represent a certain type of learner in your classroom and um, you're using these four and you've got a tally list of moments in time or you're, you're checking things across time um, every 10 minutes or every 20 minutes, right? And when you're teaching, and this can be really tricky to do if you're only doing this on your own. So often it's really helpful to bring in a colleague, right? Explain the research, figure out a little testing opportunity, maybe on a different class, and you can kind of um, work together to use the observational checklist and then compare notes and discuss so that when your colleague comes into your classroom, you're, you're both on the same page as to what's being monitored. So that's just a little helpful because it, it can be distracting to do both. And then you want to pull it all together in a plan, right? This is where you're really getting close to running it. And what you're going to do is you're just going to figure out the nitty gritties. You're going to do all the steps here so you're ready to go. What are you going to do? When are you going to do it? Who's going to be involved? How long is it going to last? How often will you repeat it? Um, and then what resources do you need to prepare? Do you have to um, create the survey or the exit tickets or um, the, um, I don't know, the process that you're going to do, the tally sheet. So what do you need to do to get all of it set to go? And at this point, you are really ready to go. And this is the super most exciting part. Um, you get really antsy toward the end of that planning section because it becomes really exciting, right? You're really excited to get going. So this, uh, you know, the planning is challenging in some ways, but this because you're working in a school with people and real conditions and calendars, this is really kind of the most challenging piece, is finding a time to run it that seems like a regular day. Um, and if you're thinking, um, you know, what is a regular day anymore? I'm with you. But you can think back to those classroom set situations and settings where you suddenly have a class that you need to pick up and run after an assembly right, or after fire drill, or after some disruption, and you know that class is not going to be acting the same as it regularly would on a regular day. So what you want to do to sequence your running of the research is you want to do nothing first. Your first job is to do nothing and gather information. And what that means is you know you want to change something. Before you change anything, run um, a check and gather data on the elements that you're going to be gathering data on after you run your um, intervention or whatever you do. So what this does is it gives you data in regular time, and we call that baseline data. So it's going to allow you to see actually if there has been any change after you run your process, your action research project. So the first thing you do is you spend a week or you spend two weeks just gathering data using the same checklists so that your checklist before can be directly compared to your checklist after or whatever um, tools you're using. And then you want to you want to make sure that you gather the data from your project across the same amount of time. So if you're doing two weeks before, you want to do two weeks after. If you're doing one week before, one week after. And under roughly the same conditions. So Ideally, the only thing you want to have different between your before and your now is this new process or this new variable that you're, you're trying out. 
it doesn't happen like that exactly in the real world. And you have to account for that. And that's okay. That's just one of the things that you mention as um, a limitation. You know, you tried your best, but um, on day four, there were eight students absent and the room felt different and whatever the complication is, there's always something. So you just try to do your best and you try as best you can to find those sweet um, spot calendar days where nothing seems to be going on. And then you kind of get into it. You've got all of this data. You've got all of this stuff in front of you, right? You ran your research and you're jazzed and you're excited. And now you have to figure out what does it all mean? And this can be super interesting to dive into it all and then to try to construct a story, right? What, what is going on with all of this data? What story does it tell about what just went on? So you want to collect your quantitative data, the number data or the frequency counts or whatever you're using in the checklist. You want to collect them into one place and you want to think about how they compare or might differ. And for this, you can use really simple descriptive statistics, such as the means and medians um, to describe the results. You can also use simple correlations. And the sentence frames at the very beginning of this talk were set up for correlations. They just simply show relationships or associations. And if you were looking at um, predictions, you know, if you were interested in a language prediction, you could even use something like a regression model. But for the models that were provided here with language, it was simply just a correlation. And then you can use percent change too. It's just a useful describer sometimes, and just the ratio is there. So you also maybe have some qualitative data. These might be short answers that you asked about, or they might be interview things or notes from a focus group. Um, and so you have all of this stuff in front of you, all of these notes. So you wanna go through them with a pen and you wanna kind of read through and look for common ideas that seem to come out of them, like common responses. And when you, you kind of latch onto these common responses that show up in a number of answers, you call them themes and you get to use this theme to kind of describe what's going on. So for example, maybe you're asking about how students felt um, as they're developing their math community and you're trying something new and students are writing in their little short answers, um, what we did, I liked what we did because I felt safe or I like what I did because my peers were, um, I, I, they were good to me. I trusted that they, they wouldn't call me out or something. All of those things could be flagged by you as belonging to a certain theme like belongingness or community or safety. And when you do that um, across a real body of work, like from interviews and short answers, you get these uh, number of these themes that emerge. And then these are the things that you can use to tell the story of your qualitative results. And then what do you do with them, right? Okay, so you've got these results, you've done this great thing and you're just bursting to tell people and do something. So the first thing is you use your results for you, right? This is the whole point of action research is to take what you've learned from your really um, amazing group of learners and use it to improve yourself, to, to adjust and improve your classroom practices. Right, to tailor what you do for this group in front of you. So that means that the process 
is kind of this iterative cycle. It's you go through research and you've got the results and then you reflect like, oh gosh, what does that mean for my practice? I could do this, I could do that. I think I wanna change these things now. So the reflections actually lead you into actions that you take as um, a professional or as a person to change what you're doing. So you're kind of leveraging the student assets in the room and what they've given you in terms of feedback. And you're using that to make changes in your own practice. And then you reflect further, like, oh, I tried that today and it really worked well. And I could see how this and this and this could um, really be better if I did this. And so you have further reflection and then you have new questions and then there's more research. So it's this amazingly cool thing that is like a, snow, a slow rolling snowball, right? You just, you just keep developing new things and um, growing in your practice and your skills. And then you don't have to keep it to yourself. That's the other really cool thing. You get to share with other people. So how can you share your results with others? Well, think about your wider school. I mean, you start in your little classroom and then you can move out to your department, right? Maybe a couple people in your department wanna try what you tried and see what they get. And then maybe you could move it out into your building. Maybe what you tried, um, like maybe you tried lower light levels in your classroom when students are doing um, individual work. Maybe they wanna try that in different parts of the building, like in social studies class or, um, writing class, right? It doesn't have to be math specific. And then maybe you could share it um, with your PLC, which here we have them, they're called uh, professional learning communities. And they're members of math, um, usually at similar levels, teachers of math at similar levels of you, but from different buildings. And so it's like this, this really fun, beautiful brain trust community, right? Of learners and educators who come together with similar interests. You could share it there too, and it would move it outside of your building, right? You could also share it in a newsletter going home. I tried this thing and it was really, really amazing, the results we got. Or talk about them as you have district gatherings. And then some final things to consider. We're on the tail end here, you've got these results. At the end of the day, action research is really meant to be about your unique group of learners. So because of the way in which you're choosing your small group and you're involving yourself and you're running your research, you have to be really careful when you're discussing your work um, because your results are true for your group. This is what happened with them and, and this, is, this is what came out of their um, actions and reflection. But the truths that you find for your group don't necessarily apply to other groups. And this is the idea of generalizability. So although your results um, should really not be generalized beyond your little classroom or your little group, it, it doesn't mean that they can't be used by other people. They still can inform others of ideas to try within their own practice. And um, these might be really beneficial for reaching their different groups of learners. You just have to be cautious in your language to not overreach and um, overgeneralize. And then when you're doing research always, you, you always wanna protect um, your participants, the safety, the health and the well-being of your students. And I, I don't imagine you would ever, you know, intentionally cause harm or embarrassment or disadvantage. But the um, one thing that might happen is that you find something so helpful to learning and only half of a group has gotten the advantage of this 
that um, something to be mindful of is to make sure if that happens that you run your research again, you don't necessarily have to gather data, but you can, so that the other half of the group gets that similar advantage, right? So you're spreading the advantage across all of your learners. So the point is to focus on what we do as educators specifically and see if changes in approach or technique or learning strategy can help us to improve our learning um, or our learning community. And maybe um, you might have some additional research. So if you find something super compelling, you can follow this again with a more formal and a larger scale research project, right? And then you can see if you can get a structure that will allow you to generalize to other groups. And then the one caveat here is that because this research is more formalized and involves larger people and might have the potential for you wanting to publish it, um, there are different rules that apply, different protections for your participants. So um, you'll wanna make sure that you really look into that. And one easy way to do this is to reach out to somebody at a local university um, because they have um, institutional review boards already at the universities. And these boards are tasked with making sure that safety protocols and protections are in place for your participants. Um, but it really, um, it's just a, a really neat way to extend your idea to a greater community. And that's it. Happy researching. And the last question would be, what are you wondering about today? So thank you, Global Math Department community, and go math. As we have a few minutes in the end, if you have any questions for Teresa, please put them down in your chat and we'll hang around here uh, to be able to answer those questions. And also I want to remind our participants here today, the Global Math Department and researchers at North Carolina State University are undertaking a study to learn about teachers' learning experiences from participation in the GMD. You can participate in the study if you have participated uh, as a presenter, as an attendee in one of the GMD webinars or a reader of the GMD newsletter. The tiny URL is on the post-it on the top. Are you able to see the questions in the chat, Teresa, now? Oh, thank you. Yes, I can. I can scroll down. So Holly is asking us, do you use something like an SLA to monitor student progress? An SLA, a student learning? Assessment, probably. Yeah, I don't use that, um, but certainly you could. And when I mentioned um, the sentence frame with the two variables, one of those very, very reasonably could be assessment results. So um, if you are looking at scores across time and um, you're trying something like um, changing up how you teach something or your approach and you're looking at a difference in scores across time, you certainly could use something like that. We have another question. What is the best way to get support as teachers do this? Uh, particularly um, as teachers, do not have a lot of support in doing this. Yeah, so, um, you know, 
I think there are two things to this question. It's a great question. Thank you. It is the kind of research that you should feel freedom in some ways to do on your own, right? You don't have to have a lot of um, administrative oversight because this is your classroom and your learners in your process of learning and developing of skills. But at the same time, um, it does take some time, right? And so maybe one great way to think about gathering support would be to do this within your um, department, right? To see if each of you could try to run a different one. And then you could work on your plans together. And then you could each explore different things that are of interest to you and your groups of learners. And in that way, it's kind of a support that comes from um, your community members uplifting one another. You're going through the same questions and the same thinking together and you're hitting stalling points, right? At about the same time. So um, I would say it's kind of freeing that you don't have a lot of that oversight, but it is something as you note that you have to do a little on your own. Ames Web, yeah, okay, so Ames Web scores. Sure, you could use Ames Web scores, Holly. Um, and you could look at, um, those are kind of computational scores. So you, you could look at a variable like maybe playing music, um, although that's distracting to some students. Maybe you find with your learners, they respond in a really positive way while they're doing their tests. Or um, you could look at some sort of instruction that um, I don't know what level you're at, but if it were doing multiplication and you're, um, you're noticing that you taught something on doubles and suddenly they're seeing a new way to do their multiplication um, across the Ames web tests. So just some ideas. And I think that might be it. We'll wait for one more minute for any more questions. And in the meantime, let me tell you uh, our participants about the next webinar. Um, thank you so much, Teresa, for sharing this with us. Um, as the questions come in, uh, on we're, we, we'll have another webinar on January 5th. And Dashiell Young-Saver will be talking to us about the best online teaching tools, socially relevant math. You'll get an email reminder for this. And please do register, if even if you're unable to attend, because then you'll be able to get a recording of the same one. So January 5th, Dashiell Young-Saver. And the topic would be the best online teaching tools, socially relevant math. We'll wait for one more minute for questions. Thank you so much, Teresa, for being with us today. Andrea, good luck with your research. I see you have ideas. That's that's mm -hmm. wonderful. Excellent. Thank you, everyone. Have a good night. Thanks so much, Teresa, for being with us. Thank, Thank you, everyone. We appreciate your presence here. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you.